It's the Law and Business Podcast, hosted by Anthony Verna. We tackle the hard issues where law and business intersect to help you understand your business's legal obligations better. Anthony's law practice is focused on trademark, copyright, other intellectual property, and advertising and promotion law. You can contact him at anthony at vernalaw.com and at 212-729-5651. And now, the Law and Business Podcast. Welcome to the Long Business Podcast. Once again, we have Jim Cushing. How you doing, Jim? Greetings, everyone. And doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm, I'm well, thank you. Jim, uh, once again, why don't you tell everybody how to find you? All right, uh, Jim Cushing. Uh, but I think uh, my professionally on Google, you'd find me at James W. Cushing. <laughs> um, my uh, law firm is the law office of Faye Riva Cohen. That's Evan Frank, A-Y-E. <laughs> R-I-V is in Victor A. Cohen, and uh, my email address is jwc at fayrevacohen.com, and uh, 215-563-7776 is how you reach me. And I keep a blog called judicialsupport.wordpress.com, where I talk about law and a smattering of religion and music and some other things. All right. So last time you were on, we were talking about a copyright infringement case, and it involved uh, the album designer for uh, one for I, I would say your favorite band, yes. Yes, correct. <laughs> My favorite band is is the progressive rock or prog rock band, yes. And uh, but he's also the cover artist for other related bands like Asia and uh, Gentle Giant, and, and he's done other things like architecture and. Um, uh, stage designing so, as well. So as as we had discussed, he filed a lawsuit against James Cameron and, and other production companies involved in making Avatar, basically uh, claiming that the design, the, the mise-en-scene, was taken from a lot of his artwork. And ultimately, the federal court threw the case out on a motion to dismiss because the... Um, the ability to make that claim that that the mise-en-scene copied uh, his artwork was really not able to be made. Right. Uh, I think I don't think there's any doubt that sub, either consciously or subconsciously James Cameron, Cameron had Roger Dean's paintings in his mind when he made Avatar. They're very, very similar, but uh, I don't... I, Anthony could probably explain it, expand it on it more last time we did this, but the, the, I don't think it meets the muster of a copyright infringement but, but, or a... Uh, Anything like that, but they very are they are very very similar. And as a Yes fan, as a Roger Dean fan, um, you know I can tell you from reading all the websites, there was lots of great wailing and gnashing of teeth over this decision. But uh, Roger Dean posted a, a I'm a friend of quote unquote on Facebook of Roger Dean, and um, he posted an update a couple of weeks back uh, about uh, the the case and, and lamenting the fact that he lost, and he thinks that you know James Karen clearly used his work and et cetera and. Uh, but he had a certain number of days to file an appeal, so I decided to, to, to hold off until writing an update until I saw what, hap- what happened in terms of uh, the appeal. And uh, today I checked the dockets and discovered that a few weeks back, a couple of weeks back, uh, Roger Dean and James Cameron decided to conclude the case. Roger Dean gave up his right to appeal the, the adverse decision and uh, about, any sort of, about any case against Jim Cameron regarding Avatar and the copyrights. And in exchange for that, James Cameron agreed not to pursue Roger Dean for any attorney's fees or costs or anything like that. So the case is now over uh, and completed, uh, uh, much to the chagrin of Roger Dean and Yes fans the worldwide about this, uh, what we believe to be a, uh, I don't know, 
I was going to say grave injustice, but I guess according to copyright law, it is not, so it's fine. Well, yeah, I, I mean, as we discussed last week, it's it's a matter of uh, I, I was I was kind of surprised that they didn't um, they didn't really amend the pleadings to discuss how it was uh, how each uh, element may have been copied, and, and so therefore they they kind of went with a very broad general. A copyright infringement claim and and the court said you can't do that because if there's a dragon for example dragons themselves aren't works that fall under copyright law but your expression of a dragon would be and and they never took the pleading to that particular level to be honest with you yeah i i don't know i never spoke to their attorneys <laughs> and i Neither i did i, I, I <laughs> Right, I did meet. I've met Roger Dean several times. Um, as I said before, he doesn't know who I am, but I've met him several times at festivals and so on. And you know, he was reluctant to talk about the case. And, and in fact, his update on his uh, Facebook page last week uh, said that he acknowledged that he's been sort of silent on this issue uh, because, by the advice of his lawyers, probably wise. Uh, so <laughs> he, I don't really have any insight beyond what sure. the complaint says, really. So, uh, so, so anyway, with. Um with the stipulation, he's not appealing, so this case is is over and dead. Yeah, yeah. perhaps on the advice of the podcast we we did last time. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, if he's listening, hi there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, being being a, a fan of the bands that you are, they they have they've had multiple lineups over right. the years, and. Certainly, what to call a particular band with a particular lineup can be a, a tricky, uh, you know, can can be a, can be a tricky situation. Uh, certainly, I know the Beach Boys have had uh, problems. At one point, the, there was a band called the Beach Boys and a band called the Beach Boys Experience touring. Uh, go ahead. I'm going to let give you the stage again and and just tell me a bit about some of the, you know these bands that you're fans of and their lineup changes and maybe some of their name issues. Sure. Uh, well, I, I was thinking more uh, specifically about Yes and Asia uh, because I feel they had they've had some very public legal issues and you know I, I think one of the things that sort of tends towards an issue that like this or with names of name usage and bands and this probably sounds obvious but it's bands that have a lot of name. Uh, personnel changes, mm-hmm. one. And two, I think bands where you have one or, or two or three people who, who view themselves as the core of the band. Because, right? you know, like a band like Jethro Tull, probably 30 people have been in that band. But no, hardly anyone <laughs> thinks they're more important than Ian Anderson, except for maybe Martin Barre. But even he doesn't when he left recently. I, I mean, cer- so have, certainly, fans of the Red, certainly fans of the Red Hot Chili Peppers uh, can, can talk about the very various lineup changes. I forget the name of the first... Uh, first guitarist and and versus, you know, uh, John Frusciante who who was was in there for a short time versus whoever is in there right now. I have I have no idea. Uh, Hillel was the name of the was the name of the first uh, guitarist who passed away. So and and the various different stages, but but most people of course see the Red Hot Chili Peppers as Anthony Kiedis and and Flea and anybody else seems a little interchangeable as well. Right. So what happened with Yes, and actually with Asia too, I'll give you a little brief history of each, is that they've, they each had had eras of, of the band where someone else, besides who you might think is the prime mover in the band, as the driving force. So with Yes, actually Yes, because they've been around for 45, actually more than that, uh, 46 years, I guess, is that uh, they've had two brush-ups with the law when it comes to the naming issue. 
um, you know, as some people might not know, is that Yes is a, is a 1960s band, had their heyday in the 70s as a progressive rock band, and they more or less broke up after 1980 when they had, uh, I don't know if it was good or bad, but they had the Buggles, the band who, uh, the, the video killed the radio star, sure. the first video on MTV. Right, the singer and the keyboardist for the Buggles joined Yes, which is, sounds crazy, but that's what actually <laughs> happened. And uh, in, in place of John Anderson, a longtime singer and founder, and Rick Wakeman, uh, they're probably their most famous keyboard player, uh, the singer and, and as it turns out, the Buggles have the same manager and were a singer-keyboard player duo, and they were in the same studio, and they both had need of the other, so they joined and it became Yes. And uh, and after that, Yes broke up, and uh, was seemingly with nothing, Yes seemed to be gone, because Steve Howell, who was in Yes, the guitar player, was off starting Asia, and uh, John Anderson became a solo artist, and Rick Wakeman became divorced <laughs> and, and, and became a solo artist. I mentioned that because he lost a lot of money in divorces in the 80s. And, you know, and sort of Chris Squire and Alan White, would you believe, and it was in, recently in the news, they might try to revive this sort of as, a, uh, as an archival type thing, but John, uh, Chris Squire and Alan White joined forces with Jimmy Page, and in theory, Robert Plant and maybe John Paul Jones, to form a band called XYZ. Um, all, at this point, only demos exist of, of Page, White, and Squire playing some stuff. And all that material has been since reused in the respective bands. But right. so yes, sort of ceased to exist. And in, ni- in the in, by 1982, Squire and White re- recruited original keyboard player Tony Kay from Yes, and uh, this guy called Trevor Rabin from South Africa to create a band called Cinema, uh, which you know have obviously sounded yet like Yes because had three guys in Yes, <laughs> and this new guy who's uh, sort of a, an 80s power chord journey type guitar player. And the record company said, you know. You guys are good singers, but you really should get a, a lead singer. And they racked their brains, and Chris Squire said, you know, I'll ring up my friend John Anderson. And uh, John Anderson said, this is great music, I'd like to sing on it. And I think that the consensus was at that point, well, if you have Chris Squire, John Anderson, Tony Kay, and Alan White, this is yes. <laughs> and, uh, and and Trevor Rabin being a constant businessman, I don't think he, as an artist, I don't think he liked the idea. But, you know, yes is going to sell better than some unknown band called Cinema. Well, well exactly. And so, yeah, and so it became Yes, and this is all the while while Asia was hitting the top of the chart with Heat of the Moment and other sorts of things, and um, and Steve Howe, over sitting in Asia, said, hey, wait a minute, I thought Yes was gone. I, I, I specifically remembered this band working up, and uh, but it didn't, and so Steve Howe took issue with the fact that Yes is being used as a name and, and their back catalogs being used. I don't think he minded the royalties from the back catalog, but he minded the... They're using the music, and, and there was a legal dust-up with Steve Howe and uh, with Yes, uh, as it was in 1983. And, and by 1984, there was, uh, and this, this is, you know, I hope no one is judging me of the fact that I know all this nonsense. Now that you're saying it, right. you're like, you're, you've had this epiphany. Right, yeah. This is not a commentary on my legal, on my, on my lawyering, please. Um, so, you know, by 1984, everybody who's ever been in Yes, which at that point was like, 12 guys, I guess, or 9 guys, or 10 or 12 guys, they all signed a licensing agreement in 1984 uh, as to who is in, who is out, who could use what, and when. And Steve Howe, t- uh, and in that sort of settlement, got use of the famous curly Yes logo, which is in use now, the one that's really famous. I don't know if anyone knows what that looks like. I'm sure Anthony could put a picture of it on this thing, but yeah, you, the famous logo. Steve Howe got that. And I'm pretty sure, although I'm not 100% positive, I'm pretty sure he got use of using Roger Dean as the, as the artist. Because, yes, without yes. Steve Howe, never used 
Roger Dean. That is correct. So he got that. So And then the name went with the guys in the band, and there were certain rules regarding who could use the name when. So that was the first legal dust-up. And wouldn't you know it, five years later, 1989, or 88, maybe four years later, they had to use this, this sort of, this document became the, the centerpiece of a legal issue that arose because John Anderson, when he rejoined for, with Cinema, had a two-record deal. They made 90125 with Owner of the Lonely Heart, and then again, Big Generator, the second one in 87. He became sort of disinterested in pop music, or not being in control of the band, because Trevor Rabin was now in control. Like I said in the, in the beginning, you had this new guy as sort of the prime mover, Trevor Rabin. John Anderson was also was the 70s prime mover, and he said, well, he was upset that he was, could no longer control the band, I guess, and he wanted to make different kinds of music, and that was unreceptive in the band and the, in the music and in the record company. So, uh, you know, he and four other, or three other Yes compatriots, namely Bill Bruford, Rick Wakeman, Steve Howe, all decided to form a band. And, you know, when you have those four, four guys who <laughs> made, you know, Fragile and Close to the Edge and, the you know, some big, big, big Yes music, they're like, well, what are we going to call ourselves? And that became a problem, right? So... They they did not call each other. Uh, they didn't call themselves yes. They called themselves, you know, sort sort of coincidentally, like a law firm name. <laughs> they called themselves Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, Howe. Or, or really more like Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. <laughs> Although yeah, that sounds like right. a law firm too, frankly. Yeah, right. ABWH is what everyone started calling them because they didn't want to say they weren't yes, because they kind of were, but they also couldn't call themselves yes. Uh, but and yes, it was existing doing other things. They were, believe it or not, rec- trying to recruit Roger Hodgson to, re- to from Supertramp to replace John Anderson at that point. And um, so they, they sort of uh, rankled yes when when ABWH started rearing its head in the publications because you know the the average public person like Rolling Stone magazine or whatever MTV. Oh, oh, this is the new yes, and oh, this is the new yes album, and the yes that existed with Chris Squire, Alan White, Trevor Rabin, Tony K. They're like, no, no, no. They're not yes. They're some weird imposters. We are the yes. And then there was litigation that was raised in the Central District of California in 1988 or so, indicating, uh, you know, this this release that the general release they signed said sort of barred ABWH from even mentioning yes, from 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 flying, using their catalog, from uh, you know being because they thought it'd be generate confusion, which I guess Anthony is a normal normal standard, right? So. And and so out of that, because uh, John Anderson basically said, I'm not, I never left, yes, I just had a two-record deal. I never left, I just finished the deal, so I'm doing something else right now. Sure. And uh, yes, had obviously a different opinion of that, and uh, <laughs> as to who could use the name and what. So, because I think the promoters were using the, the, the tour called, uh, uh, it was called um, An Evening of Yes Music was the name of the tour for ABWH. <laughs> which, you know, it's you know. creative. And, I'm going right, right. to give him points and, for being creative there. And what actually, what actually what the even more creative, Anthony, is that the, the final name of the tour, when they also made a live album of this name too, an evening of Yes Music Plus. Because you know, they're just not, they're playing their new material too. That's, that's technically not Yes. And so... And so that became obviously the the, the 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 sort of the locus for this for this confusion. And uh, Roger Dean did their stage setting in their artwork too. And ultimately, uh, it was resolved so that yes, it could stay yes, and do whatever they're doing, which was not much of anything actually. And ABWH had to pers- had to continue with using that as their name, although they could they could use they could refer to their pedigree as yes musicians and call the tour an evening of yes music, but they could not call themselves yes. 
um, I guess it was sort of an unsatisfactory resolution because by the by 1990, 90, would you believe, ABWH and yes merged into one giant eight man mess that went on tour in 91 for fan, some fantastic shows. So basically, uh, everybody wound, wound up at home anyway. Anyway, yeah, that's right. But yeah, but they they there was a, there was litigation that had to handle that, and uh, and you know and since then. Uh, the name, the name, and the logos and stuff have been, have been negotiated. I think there was another one in '97, another agreement, because Rick Wakeman left in '96, and and so it goes back and forth uh, with that. Um, you know, yes, there's always now John Anderson's out, and they're they're touring a totally different lineup. So I got I don't know what the legalities of that is, but you know, Asia has a very interesting uh, situation where it's not like this sort of back and forth tug and pull with all the different members trying to do something, uh, all different. It was, Asia started out as a progressive rock supergroup. Um, probably much of the chagrin of a lot of the progressive rock bands that their album turned out to be not quite as progressive as they were hoping, but Steve Howe, of course, of Yes was in it. Jeff Downs of the Buggles and Yes was in it. Carl Palmer of Emerson, Lake and Palmer, ELP was in it and as a drummer and, uh, and, uh, uh, John Wetton of was bass and singer. He was from, King Crimson, Roxy Music, Renaissance, Uriah Heep, UK, Family, fun, bunch of stuff. And they made a couple of some albums with Roger Dean as an artist. And they had they made three albums. Uh, John, Steve Howe, not on the third. He was in GTR with Steve Hackett at that point. And they, they, they were very, very successful albums. But John Wetton had a, had a turned out of a drinking problem and they couldn't get along, et cetera. <laughs> and, and, Rock musician right, with so, a drinking problem. Right. Well, he, and, and, well, he recovered. He's, he's now in recovery, which is not good. But for the for those made this, they made those first three albums in the in the early to mid eighties and then they didn't do much of anything. But then by the early nineties, apparently there was some sort of groundswell, I guess, for Asian music. I don't know. Uh Jeff Downs uh encountered this guy called John Payne. Uh, I don't know where he came from, but he's a bass player singer and they said, Do you want to play some music together as Asia? And Jeff Downs, who was at that point the owner of the name, they said, Sure. Uh, well, let's do it and uh they recruited other sets of musicians. And the original guy, John Wetton, was sort of un, unaffiliated at this point, except for, I think, a brief tour in the mid-'90s. But other than that, uh, Carl Palmer and Steve Howe would make guest appearances on albums like playing one or two songs. I think there was a tour in 1992 for the Aqua album where Steve Howe played half the al- half the tour, like half the show, only playing his own material, and then he'd leave the stage, <laughs> um, which is strange. So, it's, so the original guys are sort of in and out of sort of guests of their own band. Well, Jeff Downs and this guy, new guy, John Payne, became Asia with other sort of rotating musicians. Everything came to a head in 2006, which was the 25th anniversary of the original Asia, where John Wetton was now in recovery, and there was this, and Steve Howe was yes was, in, was dormant for several by that point uh, for a time, and he, Carl Palmer had nothing going on because ELP has been broken up, and. And so they figured, why, why don't we get together and form Asia again? And John Payne said, well, what have I been doing for 15 years? I've been in Asia for 15 years. And so much like the, the so much like, for, somewhat similar to the uh, Beach Boys you mentioned, you know, Asia, the original Asia said, well, you know, if there's anyone who has attachment to this name, it's the one that actually sold the albums and went on tour to, for people to see, which is the original Asia, because uh, as much as John Payne did, worked hard, I don't think anyone cares about John Payne with Asia that much. They didn't sell 10 million albums like the original did. So the original album, so what happened is the original Asia, the deal was the original Asia got back together. They toured. They made a couple of, they made three or four albums, four albums. Uh, this is a side note. The third, they made one album called 30, XXX, on their 30th anniversary, and somehow Googling Asia, XXX made that a bad business decision. Uh, but that's an aside. <laughs> and, and just as a note, and 
So they became Original Asia. Their, their name is just Asia, but their website's Original Asia. And their website lists as their discography anything from the original lineup, like the first three albums in the 80s and everything they did in the OOs. And then John, and sort of like the Beach Boys, there's now Asia featuring John Payne, which is basically everything else done in that 15-year period between the original Asia eras. Uh, and so, you know, John Payne, like, again, like I said earlier, you had Jeff Downs as the prime mover in the original Asia with the other guys, and John Payne became the prime mover after the other guys left. So you have two guys sort of of two different eras saying, well, my era of this band is totally legitimate and therefore deserving of the name. And, and I, I think that's sort of where the problems arise. Where you know, like I said, other bands like Jethro Tull or King Crimson, you have guys that are important, but they they know they're not the band. Robert Fripp is King Crimson, or Je- Ian Anderson is Jethro Tull. There's, but there's no competition for for leadership. Where these bands, they have guys where they they basically take over with the permission of other big guys, I guess, and they create their own sound, which is legitimate in its own right. So. There you go. There's the brief history of, of Yes in Asia and the copyright stuff. You ready to take a, take a deep breath? Yeah, please. Okay, not a problem. <laughs> no, <laughs> but I will, what I will, will, will uh, let me talk about a couple cases, then we'll get to why the cases uh, look the way they okay. do. Uh, because, hey, we're two lawyers, we're going to geek out talking about law. And <laughs> that's, that's the, I think, kind of the point. The there was a case called Caspom um, versus uh, Steppenwolf Productions, and Caspom uh, was a former member of Steppenwolf, and believe it or not, the the Ninth Circuit said that that uh, Mr. Caspom and I forget exactly what he played was allowed to say. Uh, that he was formerly of Step- Steppenwolf, or an original member of Steppenwolf, or an original founding member of Steppenwolf, you know, however you'd like to phrase it. And, uh, of course, as long as that particular phrase was not as prominent as uh, the current band's name, so that basically you're telling the truth, right? This person is an original member of Steppenwolf, or, you know, a founding member of Steppenwolf, or formerly of Steppenwolf. All of that's true, and the person, and this person is allowed to say that. And this person isn't barred from, you know, in trademark law from doing that, not barred under contract law from doing that either. And there's there's like another case called HEC Enterprises versus Deep Purple. And I'm, I'm not much of a Deep Purple fan. I don't really remember them. But apparently there was Deep Purple and at some point a new Deep Purple. And Well, can I just say, Lanthony, I, I just looked up Steppenwolf on Wikipedia. Sure. And I think the entire music industry has been a member of Steppenwolf. Oh, probably. There's like 40 guys. Oh, probably. Absolutely. And so saying the original members, I mean, that's saying something because, you know, there's like 40 <laughs> other guys to compete with. So that's, that's, that's something, I guess. That's true. I'm not too sure that that necessarily went into the court's consideration. But, <laughs> but like, yeah, yeah. yeah I, mean, I mean, somebody's not going to go around saying third generation member of four, uh, Steppenwolf no longer in the band. No, right. <laughs> right. I mean, the band was founded in 67, right? So you have, you know. I feel like. I mean, they have an entire. There's, there's actually a, there's an entire Wikipedia page dedicated to just the, the former members of Steppenwolf. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like we're talking about a Christopher Guest movie now. Yeah, <laughs> just when I think, just when people give me a hard time about the personnel changes, and yes, at least I can count them on two hands mostly. <laughs> and and of course to talk about uh, the, the beach the Beach Boys case, excuse me, and that was called uh, Brother Records versus Jardine because it was Al Jardine, mm-hmm. uh, you know, original member of the Beach Boys who 
would use various names. Al Jardine of the Beach Boys and Family and Friends. Yes, that was actually used. The Beach Boys Family and Friends. The Beach Boys Family and Friends. Um, you know, and sometimes, of course, the Beach Boys, uh, plain and simple, were just used. And, uh, you know, as we know, there there have been many generations of, of the Beach Boys at this point. And, and Brian Wilson is, you know, kind of sort of playing once in a blue moon, uh as well. So who really are the Beach Boys? But in this particular instance, obviously, as you can imagine, the Beach Boys is a registered trademark. Um, and and here, using such phrases like Beach Boys Family and Friends and, and even Al Jar- Jardine of the Beach Boys and Family and Friends uh, would, uh, would confuse consumers. And, and actually, there's plenty of testimony in that particular case that people were confused that uh, not just concert goers, but promoters were confused as well. People didn't know oh, that there, there is a, there's actually a Beast Boys lineup Wikipedia page too. Yes, of course there should Although be. Their their numbers are much smaller though. They don't include where did where did the John Stamos fit into all this? I, I don't remember where John Stamos <laughs> fit into that. To be honest, <laughs> I think it was way after this particular case because I think that case, um, I because I forget exactly when Al Jardine you know left, um, but that case came before the John Stamos era. Of I think Kokomo, I, <laughs> pro- probably I, I could be wrong on that. But uh, according to Wiki, he joined in '84. There you go. There you yeah. go. Uh, so so Al Jardine was going around calling himself the Beach Boys or, or using one of those um, mouthful of of words, um, and and of course Mike Love was going around calling himself the Beach Boys. So you have these two original founding members both calling themselves the same name uh but but the fact of the matter still remained that um al jardine was was not a part of the group at the time and there was still a collective calling themselves the beach boys and he can't break out calling calling himself the beach boys or any of those particular phrases and especially the fact that that consumers were confused but more than that promoters were confused as well so not just the music public and the music listening public but also the music professional public that was out to book concerts and actually make money for these various entities was confused about who they were booking for so that worked very very strongly against al jardine and of course he was um he was was not allowed to um you know just call himself the beach boys at at that time um so so a couple thoughts here and and when we talked about when we talked about planning this particular um, podcast, uh, Jim and I talked about you know how how do we talk, how do we deal with names? And on on the federal IP side, I'll be talking trademark law in a second. But just as a mea culpa, I actually thought there were plenty of of states that had uh, laws about this. And you know what? I was totally wrong. I couldn't find any states that discussed band names. Uh, you know specifically, so and a lot of these cases that we're dealing with that that we're talking about really talked about either one trademark law or two contract law or some combination thereof, and so one a band name needs to be a trademark, basically is is, is um, the real thinking here, and I should say a band name is a trademark. It should be federally registered, and there should be. There should be a formation agreement, or really what is a business agreement, 
and all the a partnership exactly a partnership agreement. What it seems to be, if I can say it, Anthony, is that for some of these bands, I mean, I think uh, I'm maybe I'm stereotyping, but I feel like if people get into bands when they're young, you know, in their late teens or early twenties, and they just want to play music. And they're, not, they're not thinking about the implication of what would happen in 35 years <laughs> of me being in this band. They're not really thinking about that. And I feel as though sometimes the 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 guy who's the inspir the artistic inspiration of a band, like Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys. I mean, he's the guy who ma- who makes the Beach Boys for me. Maybe I'm maybe I'm just alone in that. I don't know about you, Anthony, but he's the guy who makes the sound for me. But he doesn't seem to be in your discussion as to the name right. at all. Exactly. Uh, which is unfortunate because without Brian Wilson, there would be no Beach Boys for well, people to fight that's about. That's true, but but in the '80s there was no Beach, there was no Brian Wilson, as well. You know, he was he was dealing with his mm-hmm. his drug issues. He was he was right. you know trying to get Dr. Landy out of the, the door, you know, talk about a Right, but it, yeah, mistake. so it seems like ultimately the people who fight about the name are the people who either are lucky enough to be in the place where they're the ones left, like Robert Fripp and Crimson or something, or they're the ones who think about, with foresight, maybe I should get an agreement so I can use this name. But but yes, yes, that's exactly that's exactly what happens. And and I can't really say that, that there's much wrong with, with what happens there. I mean, if a founding member you know, goes to the family farm and decides to be a farmer instead of um, instead of a musician. I mean, that person is no longer in the band, even if that was an original. If other people have to come in to fill that person's slot. Now, is there any analysis in, like, uh, you know, the, the, the amount of, of writing someone does or the influence they have on an image? So, you know, let's say... Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of someone like John Lennon. Someone tried to use the Beatles' name, or Bono. Bono. Someone tried to use U2's name, or something. I mean, those are those are like people who are either intrinsically important to the band as a writer or as an image person. So, does that have any weight as to the claim to the name? No, no? It, it 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 tends to be it tends to be um, whoever is. It, it's really not about that particular. Um, Issue. It's more or less about who is continuing that band's name. So, uh, if a founding member were to, you know, drop out and go do some solo stuff, and that happens to be the face of the, of the band, but like the three other people are still around and they want to record and they want to go grab a new uh, lead singer, they're able to 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 do that. And you know, think about um, think about Van Halen. Which um, you know has had three lead singer incarnations, and they're still Van Halen. You know, even though nobody's really going to think about Van Halen three all that much, and they're still Van Halen. So, so it's who's ever continuing. You know, you, you know, even if it's that key image person who's probably done more songwriting than everybody else. So. Well, in, let's say in that example you gave, you know, the, the band, you know, the first album or the first tour or whatever, they become a name, people know who they are, and there's original four or five or six members, whatever it is. That one guy leaves, and can he? does he at that point have a right to say, well, I'm, this, is, this is no longer the band that I was in, you can't use the name? I, I, would, say, I would say without an agreement, the answer to that's probably no. So, so where is the like? So, for example, 1969 or 70, when yes, it was John Anderson, Chris Squire, Tony Kay, Peter Banks, and uh, Bill Bruford. Peter Banks was fired or left or whatever, whatever story version you want to use. 
uh, left four of the five still in the band. They continued to make music uh, with Steve Howe. You know, is it the locust? Uh, how do you determine who owns the name? Is it where is the is it by majority or the, where the locust of the music is or, I, or what? You know, you know, just just noting the fact that there is um, a, a radical difference in trademark law from '69 and today. I, okay. I, I I will say that in in today's world, what you're looking at is probably majority, and in, in you know if 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 a band has five people and you know three are continuing to use that name, then then that's probably going to be who who wins out, just because they've got five, the other people have have two, and you know it's going to be without a contract, it's going to be very very sticky. For those particular reasons, I, I think what the cases tell us is certainly when one person is out of a band and still uses the band name, and and yet the the uh, quote unquote original entity is still around. I, I mean, that's that's an obvious loss for right. for the musician who's now on his own and forming and forming a band. I mean, obviously, you can go, go still play the music. I mean, that that's a totally different area. But you know, in t- talking about the band name itself. When when you've got a cluster of people who, of course, are still, uh, you know, who have that history and might still be signed under the the record deal, and th- that's kind of you, you know you're looking at these things as to what's the continuation, and if it's some kind of some kind of odd number split, probably the majority is going to get it. So even if an odd number split, it, it would still be. It w- again, I sort of going back to the question I asked you earlier: Is it still w- is, is influence in the band still a factor? So you know, taking it back to Yes, for example, let's say John and Chris Squire, John and Chris Squire left Yes in 1969. The two guys who wrote all the music at that point in time, but the other three guys were a majority, but they didn't write really anything. Where what would the do you think the court would do? That would be, you know, the majority. The, the guys who didn't write anything have majority, but the guys who wrote the whole mu- all the music and is the are the image are the two. I think I think the court might might go with whatever the record label would go with. To be honest with you, there. So if if the record label is recognizing the other you know guys as the band, then I, I think a court might might follow in that particular direction. Because if two guys leave the band, and even if their face and an image and songwriting, so so they put in the work. If if they're the ones who say we're no longer part of the band. All right, well then everybody else must be a part of the band, and and so I think I think a court might might go in that particular direction. You know, is there is there a distinction between that and I'm sorry to put you on the no, spot. It's okay. There. I mean, cross examining. No worries. No, um, no worries, counsel. Is there a dis- <laughs> is there a distinction between someone leaving the band and like with Yes in 1980, where people thought the band was dissolved? And then someone pulled up, you know, pick up, picked up the torch again, and said, "No, we're going to bring it back." Well, in in looking at this from from a typical trademark law standpoint, because I think that's what we would have to do in absence of a contract, or you know, and and in this particular case, let's just make that assumption. Uh, trademarks are abandoned after three years, and I know this is going to sound a lot of you know just really weird to a lot of people, but if on one hand, I think we can we can we can separate a typical business and a band. And if, if, if a business no longer uses a trademark, another business or person can come around and, and pick up that trademark after three years and, and just use it for the same goods and services because the other original business is no longer using it. It's been abandoned. 
Uh, for bands, I mean, all of that applies as well. I would say here the difference is that if um, you know somebody were to have, have come around in the late two thousands and call themselves you know Toad the Wet Sprocket, you'd sit there and say, "Well, no, you're not Glenn Phillips," and and you know the guys aren't here, and and you know <laughs> you know yeah, the website's kind of dead, but but you're not Toad the Wet Sprocket. And I think a lot of a lot of music fans would be wired to do that. And right. uh, even if under trademark law, that would have been fully acceptable. Um, y- now, does a record company who still makes their, I mean, I'm sure Atlantic Records or Virgin, whoever it is, I don't know who's still buying Toad West Rocket CDs. I'm sure there is somebody. Uh, uh, maybe me? Probably, yes, apparently you. <laughs> me? I bought like, the last one. <laughs> right, so, so does, like, let's say that, you know, a band goes 10 years without making something and they're dormant for, for a better, for, you know, for whatever, for one of a better term, they're gone. Uh, it, but, you know, the the record company still makes their CDs for the two people who buy them a year. Does that keep it alive? I I think so, and and that's that's actually what I was going to say. I mean, you can look at the example of um, of REM right now, who is uh, you know officially dormant and broken up. But when you go look at um, uh, their their website is still up, giving you updates about everybody. They they released um, a couple of uh, rarities collections. They released their uh, uh, MTV Unplugged uh, complete series. So they're still putting out stuff um, as as REM, and I think you'll see that probably be the way of the future, so that the name can at least be encapsulated by the original members. And, and I have no doubt that while R.E.M. is no longer going to make new music, I certainly uh, highly doubt that, that the four original members are not owners of the corporation, for lack of a better phrase. And, and, well, because I have to tie this into prog rock, Bill Reiflin, R.E.M. drummer, is now in King Crimson. Bill Berry. There you go. What's that? Bill Berry, R.E.M. drummer. Uh, yeah, there's a guy called Bill Reiflin, apparently, who's a member of uh, of uh, R.E.M. No, Bill, as a drummer. I don't, I don't Bill Reiflin? Yeah, R... How do you spell uh, that? Uh, it is called... It is uh, R.I... Well, you know what? His, his, the King Crimson website says he was, but it's uh, R.I.E.F.L.I.N. Okay, so he, pro- he, probably, he probably was... Um, he probably came around... Um, yeah, the, the, his website and wiki says he quote worked regularly with. Or, yeah. yeah, so there you so, go. To me, he's yeah. a side man. Yeah, there you go. There you yeah. go. He's the King Crimson's third drummer, and when I say third, I don't mean in a row. I mean all at once. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, um, but yeah, so I, I think I think you're going to be seeing, uh, I think you're going to be seeing more of this, and and I think for a lot of bands. Uh, getting back to your original thought is is gee when you're 18 19 all you want to do is pick up a guitar pick up a bass pick up a you know pick up drums and and you know get out your anger and make, and make some music yeah. and you're not thinking of it as a business and one of one of my my earlier episodes where I spoke with Jay Thorne who's a, a horror writer he said I, I you know that 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 he's an artist but he also has to think of himself as an entrepreneur and for a lot of bands, you need to think about uh, yourself as a business. And that means having a partnership agreement, uh, understanding, you know, what a band name is and how to properly protect it. And if you start, you know, when you start making money, 
uh, how to how to properly protect it and understanding copyright law and making sure that that your copyrights are registered that your royalties are coming in what whatever is required in your business you have to make sure that it's done correctly and a lot of people just don't uh, don't quite see that when they're working in the arts Right. I, I guess with bands, ultimately, I mean, they might not have a contract with one another in the band, but I would suspect if you're going to sign with any sort of record company, there has to be something, some pen has to be put to paper that says, you know, this is the entity that's entering into this contract for it to sell records or whatever. Yes. I, I, and, yes. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you a classic example, um, since we're jumping around generations here, is um, Crosby, Stills, you know, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And I think... Um, I, I'm trying to remember when they were going for another record, and I was it um, was it uh, Stephen Stills who had who had no, it was David Crosby. So it wound up being a Stills and Nash uh, album, and the record company said, "No, we wanted a Crosby Stills and Nash you know <laughs> album, and and this doesn't fulfill your contract." And so um, you, you you have that happening at times throughout history. Uh, and and that's kind of and that's probably going to be you know an issue and and yes yeah, so the record companies do keep track of who is in also because there are performer royalties uh, as well that that's another reason that record companies uh, keep track and a performer performance royalty um, is is a new kind of kind of right and anything after seventy anything before seventy two. Uh, those people, those people are not getting a performance royalty on top of any other sales royalties or copyright royalties, etc. So, you mean when you say performance oh, sure. royalty, you're not talking about sure. You're not talking about you know putting on a concert. If I no, if if um, any recorded music after '72, um, the the people who perform get a royalty as well as the writers for any sales so that if if um you know if if an artist is singing somebody else's song and that song sells whether it's it's on a it's on a compilation in other words a cd or it's sold you know by itself as an mp3 or as a single or gets radio airplay there are going to be rights passed out to the songwriter but as well as to the musicians who have played on that track Okay. So, so there's there's going to be a separate royalty there. <clears throat> um, so, record companies need to keep track of who's in a band and who's playing on what song, anyway. And I imagine there's a, the the record the writing credits are important for that too. Well, yes, absolutely. And um, you know, in copyright law, that that's it's required that when a royalty is is paid, it's paid to all um, copyright owners. Um, and and <clears throat> at this point, and in today's world. The songwriters, you know, are going to be the copyright owners. Right. Well, the performance royalty is for all, right? Or the, or just the, the songwriting royalty? Both. Both. Okay. Both. Yeah. So, like, so if, two, so if Lennon McCartney wrote a song, but all four of them played it, so that's two different royalties yes. depending on who participated. Yes. Okay. Yes. Of course, like I said, all of any any performance of of all four Beatles is before seventy two. So, <laughs> you know, if yeah, you go right. by the White Album, Sir Paul's not getting any money from performance royalties. 
way because he, he, I thought he didn't perform in the last two. But but no, what I'm saying is is that it was before '72. All oh, right, okay, yes. well, that's when the laws changed. Yes, yes, okay, yes. Well, you know that. I mean, this is probably a, a podcast for another day. But you know, there's there's a couple of people in the who say they've never gotten their royalties uh, for something, or maybe they came very late, or they're still fighting for them, or whatever. From years gone by, I, I wouldn't be surprised um, with that. I mean, you will find in newspapers and music uh, heavy um, cities, or in music uh, publications, uh, you'll find a list of royalties of um, you know that that are supposed to go to people that that quote-unquote, cannot be found. And I will certainly tell you that Paul Schaefer's name will be on that list. And I don't know about oh, you, sure. I think he's pretty easy to find. So, well, <laughs> a, couple, a couple of funny stories, if I could. Sure. Um, one, I, I'm not going to mention, I represented this woman in a divorce, and her, her husband, probably now ex-husband, I didn't finish the divorce with her, She he was a performer in uh, a somewhat famous band that plays Christmas music. <laughs> um, and he, I have a couple guesses already in my head, but anyway, <laughs> that's right. And so it, it was sort of like a Seinfeld episode because she saw, was telling me about these royalties that she was due to receive as and as part of the marital estate, which in theory is true, I guess, uh, depending on the situation. And so she gave me the, this list of like all these royalties, and like she said, the thousands of dollars that she's due. And she needs to get her share of this, et cetera. And I was sort of sharing in her the, the justice of it all. Until, and this is why it's a Seinfeld episode, if anyone watches Seinfeld, uh, is that until I realized these royalties are Japanese. So they're all in yen. <laughs> so the royalties are always like $750. <laughs> you know? It's like, I don't know. But so she didn't realize that the yen were like vastly like smaller than a dollar, for example. That, that's all right. I just heard, uh, I just heard an interview with uh, uh, Rich Eisen from the NFL Network where he said that uh, he, he just got home and, uh, from, from a flight and opened his mail, and there was a royalty check from doing two episodes of CSI Miami, and it was something like $2.45 in, in residuals. <laughs> So. Hopefully, he won't, his arm won't cramp up right now to checks like Jerry Seinfeld. Did. <laughs> um, no, but there was it, uh, the first the first episode of I don't know, episode is the wrong word, but the first featured case on Court TV was Patrick Morez, keyboard player for Yes Refugee, but ultimately the Moody Blues uh, when he was asked to leave the band or kicked out. I'm not sure what the circumstances of his departure were. Uh, he was uh, apparently much to his chagrin, and I guess didn't know he was not an official member of the band. So when he was just uh, touring and playing, he's a, he was you know toured and played on the studios and wrote the music, but I guess he was an official member, and so he didn't get the royalties he thought he was deserved. Uh, so he took him to court, and it was on court TV. Uh, interestingly enough, I guess. But uh, I saw uh, my wife doesn't go to see uh, progressive rock concerts with me anymore. Uh, that was she, she did that while film. we were dating. Well, yeah, we she did that while we were dating, I guess, because that's what you do. <laughs> and then, yeah. And then you know she we went she went to a bunch of, I'll give her credit she saw yes with me she saw porcupine tree so she was a good sport she saw the Dixie Dregs and uh, oh just as an aside she the last thing she ever saw was the, this group called the Musical Box which is a, a group that's officially licensed by Genesis and Peter Gabriel okay. to put on shows note for note and word literally note for note just like yeah Genesis how, would how, how do they how did they sound like how did the vocal sound as compared oh, to it's Peter, unbelievable. Peter Gabriel. It's, it's, their their key their claim to fame is that they they if you if you line up pictures of their show next to a Genesis show it's exactly the same they 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 play all the notes exactly the same they all their all their body motions they finally look at the footage they try to duplicate a Genesis show as, as 
as best as you humanly can. It's amazing. Wow, I had no idea. And, and I remember going to this musical box show with uh, my wife Tiffany, and uh, and, and you know it, it was it's, they were replicating one of the shows from the uh, Selling England by the Pound, and you know Peter Gabriel, the guy playing Peter Gabriel, was wearing you know the bat wings and the goofy face paint with the real in, in, incandescent eyes and. They're glow in the dark and all the weird backgrounds and the costuming. And she looks at me and she goes, "This is this is it. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I, this is the last one." But right. So anyway, but I find, one of the but I find, just, that, I find that interesting that that there's a band <laughs> that's basically licensed, you know, in order to sound and look exactly like you know another band. Yeah, because you know that that era of Genesis is so unique with the performance and the staging and the and the costuming and the music that I guess people didn't want it to die out because Genesis became totally revolutionized in the '80s. And Peter Gabriel occasionally will say will recognize the fact he did this. He usually doesn't talk about it, but sometimes he does. And he gave them literally the stage props to do it and a lot of the vintage stuff. And Genesis, the rest of Genesis, will sometimes even sit in with the band, and it's it's pretty neat. Um, but in, in one of the tours she, or shows she saw with me before the end was we saw Rick Wakeman at the Electric Factory in Philadelphia. I'm from Philadelphia. I practiced in Philadelphia in 2005, uh, I think. And it was Rick Wakeman's solo show. And this is relevant to royalties. And uh, if you don't know, he was the he was a very very popular and prominent session musician. So he's played on countless albums that most people have heard, but they don't know it's Rick Wakeman of, of Yes. And uh, you know David, a couple of David Bowie, first two David Bowie albums, Black Sabbath. Reed, lots of stuff, and um, so this one was in particular Cat Stevens' "Morning Is Broken," which I think most people I have heard. So. The, and, right, Anglican Christian hymn, and he Cat Stevens went to play it, and and he hired Rick Wakeman as a session guy to play the piano, and as as most Christian hymns are, that's like a minute and a half long, right? So that's although singles are short, they're not that short. And Cat Stevens said, "Well, Rick, can you?" Why don't you come up with an introduction? You played an introduction. Okay, why don't you play... Uh, okay, well, good. Why don't you do the same thing at the end? Okay, we'll play the same thing at the end. And Rick Wakeman is telling the story in the middle of his songs and, and when I saw him. Okay, do a little uh, middle thing. Okay, and that, that gets the song out to like three minutes and they added another bit. That's great. And they recorded it and it became a big hit. And uh, later on, Rick Wakeman was supposed to get his check for his royalties. And uh, Cassidy never got it. Cassidy even called Rick Wakeman and said, Hey, could you give me the music for what you played? Because we've got to go on tour and this is a big song and we want to make sure you play it. <laughs> And Rick said, well, sure, yeah, I'll give you the music. Just, you know, give me my, give me my check. The check never came. And so when we saw Rick Wagman perform, he pushed the piano away so he couldn't see his fingers because to this day he's never been paid for those royalties. And, so, and to this day, Cat Stevens has no idea really what he played exactly. <laughs> and it, it, so it's never been actually replicated as, as on the album because Rick Wakeman refuses to disclose that until he gets his... At this point, it's probably like $5. <laughs> Who knows? But, you, you know, I'm kind of surprised at that because it's, it's not hard for a lot of musicians to just figure out what somebody else is playing. It, I'm kind of surprised. Well, I'm sure they figured it out, but he's just, you know, right. he just says it on principle. Sure. You know. I, you know, it reminds me very much of, of a case I had when I first uh, broke away from my... Um, old firm and and there was no dispute over the name when that right, happened right right no exactly <laughs> but when I, uh, I i i took over a case and it had to do with um a, a documentary that was made and the I, I represented a cameraman which which seems a little bit odd to a lot of people because uh a cameraman's work doesn't necessarily belong to him it belongs to the production company or the company that's hired him to, to actually just point the camera. Uh, but there was no agreement, so that's issue number one. Uh, and, and issue number two was more so that the interviewer 
who came to do the interview for this documentary came with about three questions, which is, you know, nice for maybe a half hour's worth of shooting. But if you're actually putting together a documentary, you need to have, you know, four or five hour sessions with uh, people that you're speaking to. And, and really these clips in a documentary of somebody speaking for 30 seconds is called out of four or five, six hours worth of, of excuse me, of footage. Sure. And in this particular case, our argument was that the, you know, my client put in a lot of authorship and that what was done was very much a work of authorship by needing to pad 30 minutes worth of, of conversation into three or four hours. And that he he was able to do it on his feet. He was able to keep the subject talking. And he was able to get them enough footage that they were then able to put into the documentary and make a better documentary out of. So it, it, it's very much a similar argument. Like here's somebody who's made, you know, I mean, it's a little easier when somebody's a musician has written written music. Uh, but it's the same issue. It's it's like, oh, yeah, all right, you you recorded it. But now I want I want the check for my authorship and that's effectively what what that is there under copyright law yeah because he he participated creatively in the creation of this documentary as much as the other players in the in the in the in the thing absolutely i would think no absolutely absolutely right so i guess the moral of our story today is get everything in writing doesn't matter which part role you play make sure you have a partnership contract boy it sounds like such a lawyer doesn't it (laughs) yeah I, i know and it's not like we're here to suck the fun out of out of music it's something that i've certainly done i've done partnership agreements i've done uh, uh you know trademark searches uh for for musicians and it's it's something that's that a lot of bands don't quite think of but ultimately down the road when you plan your business which is effectively what a band is it's a business and you plan for down the road you'll when you get to trouble points it's easier to deal with them well, think of it this way: the, the writing the if you're an 18 or 19 year old guy entering in the band, and you're writing a, a part, writing a partnership contract, you're basically saying that you're going to be around in 20 years to make that important, which is a good thing for your career, I guess. It, it's it's because uh, otherwise, it's, to me, it's a sign of uh, you know. Here's a, I, I do have a question for you, sure. before you before we sign okay. off. I do have a question. My um my father-in-law, Matt Stauffer, he's in a band. Okay. Uh, he's he's a musician. Uh, he he was never able to get the, the big record deal that he wanted, but he still tours and you know locally in pubs and bars and has bands and so on. And he's in a band right now called Geezer. <laughs> uh, and you know, he's a funny guy. And uh, so there are a bunch of guys in their 50s and 60s uh, playing music of their era. And so obviously, you know, they made an album out of someone's house on a PC, right? There's no record company. Sure. And by the album, I just mean a, a series of covers. I don't think they have a whole lot of, they only have one or two original songs that I know of. And so there's no record company, there's no record deal, there's no contracts, there's none of that. Uh, there's a website, uh, but you know, can someone else use that name? Well, it's just a just a, just a garage band, more well, or less, of, of old guys. Going 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 back to traditional trademark um, principles, because that's effectively what we're looking at here. The first question we have is: Is there interstate commerce? One is there commerce to begin with, and two is there interstate commerce? You know, so so let's let's break that out into into two questions. And then the next question that we have is: Is this the most uh, senior user of the mark? 
because in especially in the goods and services. So if there was another band out there called Geezer, uh, using you, you know you know obviously same goods and services, whether it's recording music or performing music, certainly they're related. Uh, so, so you have to look at all of those questions and get those questions answered before you get to your yes or no. Of course, it's not necessarily a you know flip some bits and and you get a definitive answer. Well, as any as any answer the lawyer gives you, it depends. Of course, I mean, and, the, and... <laughs> right. So, but so I guess for a garage band like Geezer, I mean, they're they're not you know they're they're a Philadelphia area, you know, bar they perform in bars and such. So I mean, if some gr- group came up in like Toledo, Ohio, or you know Boise, Idaho, with the name Geezer, which I'm sure there's other people using the name, <laughs> uh, that would necessarily I guess cause a conflict because they're, it's not really a, a band that, that goes out of the five county Philadelphia area. Sure, and and like I said, you're going to uh, probably <laughs> with a lot of some businesses, you'll see that that particular um, conflict happen. And um, I'm actually dealing with this for a client right now. Like, who are who do we have the right to send a cease and desist letter to? Is the cat even just out of the bag? And, and those are particular questions that you always have to have to answer. So, so here it's going to be right. Is are there you know are there bands that are senior to this band? And even even that isn't necessarily definitive because if if one band's only been around a year, that's going to be different than another band that might have been around for three years, and it depends on how long this particular band is around as well. So, so all of those are. You know, when you start going down the checklist of things that you have to answer, um, yeah, the the it depends typical lawyer, you know, thing that we joke about really does come into play. Thanks for answering. I do my best. <laughs> All righty, sir. I will let you return to work, Jim. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Until next time. Of course, sir. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. You're see welcome. You. You're welcome. Bye. Bye.